All right, as you're having a seat, church, uh, if you would, grab your Bibles uh, and open up to the book of Ruth. We're going to be finishing chapter 3 this morning. If you're new with us, I want to say welcome. So glad you're here. Uh, what we typically do here at Providence North is we teach through books of the Bible, so we currently find ourselves uh, in the book of Ruth. It's a small four-chapter little book uh, in the Old Testament. It is a narrative. It is this beautiful story. Uh, we've talked about the fact that even outside of Christian contexts, outside of the biblical world, that this story is highly regarded as this perfectly written short story. So it's this wonderful literary piece, but it also carries with it incredible truths about the person of God, the nature of God, and ultimately uh, threads align for us uh, to Jesus. It gives us a line and a hope of Jesus's lineage. And so um, it's a, it, the story of Ruth and Boaz is found in this book of Ruth, and it's their love story. It's how they meet. It's these two unlikely people that meet in a very unlikely way that will uh, get married, and their offspring will produce eventually King David, who... Uh, is great, great, great grandfather, grandson of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's this important book uh, where we see the heritage and the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ and the beginnings of how uh, we have our Savior today. So it's this wonderful book. So if you're not with, if you haven't been with us, I'm going to do a quick recap and then we're going to jump into the, uh, albeit very strange chapter, end of chapter three. It is the most strange one. Uh, to say the least. Uh, but if you haven't been with us, chapter one, uh, Ruth begins, God is at work even in the darkest of times. So God is at work and it's a, it's a dark time for God's people. Chapter one begins and there's famine in the land of Bethlehem. And so God's people, where Naomi and this family live, there's famine that hits, and uh, even ironically in the story, it highlights this reality of this, this stark contrast of this dark times for God's people, because Bethlehem means house of bread, and it begins with there is famine in the house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. It's highlighting these themes for us. And so it is a dark time. Famine has swept over. Naomi, uh, the, the characters in the very beginning of the story, Naomi and her husband live there in Bethlehem. And so because there's no food, they flee to a neighboring country, Moab. Their two sons take on Moabite wives. But tragically, in chapter one, all the men in the story, Naomi's husband, and Naomi's two sons, after they've taken wives, all die. They pass away. So it's this dark cloud at the beginning of this story in chapter one. And the reader's left to wonder, what is going to happen with this family? What is going to happen to Naomi, this woman alone in a foreign country? Now she has two daughters-in-law. Uh, what is going to happen with this woman, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah? Orpah eventually leaves. Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, hear that the Lord has once again visited his people back in Bethlehem. So they get news, they get word, the Lord has visited the people of God once again in Bethlehem uh, through food. They hear there's bread back in the house of bread. So they're like, we've we gotta go back. So they journey back, they sojourn back. Naomi and Ruth, they had lived in Moab for 10 years. Ruth had never been to Bethlehem, and she travels back with her mother-in-law, the only uh, believer in God that she had ever known. Uh, she comes to faith in God, 
And as Naomi and Ruth are going back, they're traveling back to Bethlehem. Naomi says this as she's returning. She says, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. That's how Naomi describes her situation as she's going back to Bethlehem. She's like, the Lord has dealt bitterly. And once again, the brilliance of this story, Naomi's name means sweet. The name Naomi means sweet. And here is Naomi, her her very essence is sweet. And she's going back to Bethlehem and she's telling her daughter-in-law, she says, the Lord's not been sweet to me right now. He's dealt bitterly with me. So she's downcast. She's discouraged for very obvious reasons here. She's wondering, God, what are you going to do here? How are you going to get me through this mess? How am I going to move forward with my life in this current state? The Lord is dealing bitterly with me. And I think this is, I wanted to just pause this morning for a moment and recognize the fact that there are times even in our lives when the Lord deals very sweetly with us. Through good seasons, the Lord is providing for us. The Lord is moving in our lives. The Lord is um, directing and guiding us, and we're following him, and it's just a sweet season. And on contrast, there are times in our own personal lives where we can relate with Naomi, and we just have to say, the Lord's has been, the Lord is dealing bitterly with me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. I don't know what next month is going to look like. And Naomi is just having this honest moment talking about the Lord's walking me through a very tough season. And she just speaks it out loud. And I think there are times when the Lord deals bitterly with us. And I think that's done on purpose, and it's to show us things. There's times in my life that the Lord, I could echo with Naomi and say, the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. Whether it's going through very difficult seasons, where it's going through seasons of loss, where it's going through seasons of tragedy, whether it's going through seasons personally that the Lord is having me for some reason walk through, and I'm wondering, Lord, what are you doing here? Why are you having me walk through this? It doesn't feel like you're near. It doesn't feel like you're present. It doesn't even feel like you're listening to me. What's going on here? Well, you're questioning, God, why are you dealing bitterly with me? Maybe you find yourself in a situation like that right now where you're just wondering, Lord, what are you doing here? You can echo the words of Naomi. Ah, The Lord's, I don't know what he's doing, but it doesn't feel sweet right now. There's been a few times in my life where I can echo those sentiments where there's some dark times, right? And I can echo Naomi's words at the end of chapter one, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Maybe that's you right now. But now when I look at those times, however, when I look back on those times where I was, always, when I was wondering, I was in the midst of it, I couldn't, I couldn't see which way was straight, I, was, I couldn't understand or discern the voice of God or the call of God in those moments, and it was hard and it was bitter, ultimately when I look back and I see now it was for my good and God was doing something even in the midst of those seasons where it felt like the Lord was dealing bitterly with me. Ultimately, It was God was producing something in me. God was showing me something. He was working on my heart, on my mind, and on my soul, even in the midst of bitterness, even in the midst of trouble. And so these seasons, walking through one of those seasons, in fact, was the very um, crux and birth of Providence North Community Church. 
I was in the midst of a season where I felt like, Lord, had I not heard you clearly, maybe you're not with me, you're not guide. I feel lost, I don't know what you're doing. And the Lord humbled me, the Lord, I felt like I had my legs cut out from under me. I was wondering what's going on here. I was, I was struggling, I was at times like Naomi shaking a fist at God and I was frustrated. But through a season of what felt like bitterness, God was humbling me. He was purifying my calling. He was breaking me so that he could build me back up. He was showing me that I had a lot more to learn than I thought that I did. He was showing me I couldn't do it on my own. I needed to lean more fully and heavily into him. And he was transforming my worship life. He was helping me cling to him even in the midst of bitterness. Those are, looking back, wonderful yet hard lessons for me to learn. Maybe you're in a season like that. I would encourage you to still cling to the Lord. He's still good in the midst of even bitter circumstances. And even in, the ver- in that very place, in that maybe crucible-like moment, he is, he's refining, he's teaching, and he wants to grow you even in that very place. I remember uh, in a journal of mine praying about a church that I wanted to be a part of that I wanted uh, God to build, that I wanted God to do. And I wrote down these words, and it's been sort of a mantra that we come back to as a staff, and I come back to personally about what kind of church we want this to be. And it says this, and I remember writing it down. It was in a, a time of brokenness, but I don't think God would have ever gotten me to that point had it not been for the bitter times. And I said, God, help me be a part of a church that is full of broken people with no room for selfish agendas. Help me be a part of a church where it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God, help me be a part of a church where we haven't all figured it out, but we're stumbling forward into green pastures and beside still waters by the providence of God. A church where the gospel is not just good advice, but life-giving good news. Good advice is rules to follow. Good news is something that's already been done. Let us be a people that cling to that. And so it was in one of those moments that I jotted that down, and that's been a reminder to me to say, all right, Lord, what you've called us to is good, and it's right. And it was in one of those bitter moments that the Lord began to refine that, that we are getting to experience by his kindness here today. And I wouldn't trade it in a million years. It was hard, and it was... uh, It was wrought with some gut-wrenching moments, but the Lord showed me even his kindness in the midst of bitterness on the other side. So if you are in the midst of that, if you're in that place, I'm gonna plead with you to say, just press into the Lord. He's still good. He's still for you. He's still with you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He isn't distant. He isn't off somewhere else in the midst of that moment, in the midst of whatever it is you're battling, whatever it is that feels like bitterness to you, lean into him because he's teaching you something for your own good and he's refining you in the process. And that's the kindness of God. Um, So these moments, I believe, I think what really makes us, what gives us grit, what gives us perseverance, what helps us take that next sport, are sort of forged in our own sort of Moab experiences, if you will. And I don't want us to miss that while we study this story. I don't, I don't think we'd leaned into that quite enough in the past few weeks. And I want to just remind us of that as we're looking at this story, right? It's not just Naomi always complaining. 
The Lord had dealt her a bitter hand. She lost her husband. She lost her two boys. And she doesn't know where her next meal is going to come from. But she's still leaning into the Lord and says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. But she's still clinging to the Lord. She said, I heard the Lord had visited his people again. So I want to go back. I want to find him. I want to be near to him. So let's, let's, let's lean in like even Naomi did in moments like that that we can find and hear the sweetness of God even in the midst of bitterness. Because, church, remember this. There's no Ruth chapter 4, which is ultimately redemption, which is ultimately shows us the way of Jesus without Ruth chapter 1. There's no Ruth chapter 4. There's no line of Jesus. There's no hope of redemption for you and I without Ruth chapter 1. And I find that to be amazing. Chapter 2 and 3, we see bitterness begin to turn into gladness through this wonderful process called redemption. And it's a picture of the gospel. Of it's not something I can just fix, but it's through the good of another that God lifts us out. And we have a picture of Boaz here in this story. This man that's leaning in, that is ready to redeem, that is ready to provide, that is ready to lavishly uh, pour out his blessings upon the undeserving. That's you and I. And that's exactly how God deals with us through Christ. God turns bitterness into joy. And Naomi is a picture of that for us. God turns bitterness the Lord dealt bitterly with me into joy. God takes moments and periods in our life of emptiness and can fill them up again. By the time we get to Ruth chapter 4, Naomi is a woman that is described as being full. Whereas she's walking in and ending chapter 1, she says, I'm empty. That's the goodness of God. So we're in the middle of this book, in the middle of chapter three, where Ruth initiates a conversation with this man, Boaz, um, and it's the story of these two unlikely people. Chapter three is, it, 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 it's strange. I'll just, we'll put it right out there, right? It's romance and redemption begin to play out. Last week, we left off. Naomi gives Ruth this plan. Ruth is her daughter-in-law. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to, uh, how Boaz is going to notice Ruth. They've met in this field. There's been a first date, if you will. They're wondering, are they going to get together? And so Naomi has this plan. She's like, take off your, uh, your garments that would symbolize a mourning widow. Put on a new dress. Take a bath. There's all these steps. Put on some nice perfume and go meet him at a certain place at a certain time uh, at the threshing floor at midnight and lay at his feet. So it's this strange, strange moment, right? And, uh, and so they enact this plan. And so we're going to pick up, at, as we left off, Boaz's reaction to Ruth putting on her new garments, putting on some nice perfume, midnight at the threshing floor after the harvest has come to fruition, um, laying at the feet of Boaz, and she wakes him up at midnight, Right? Boaz, it says in the text, if you want to go back, he'd had a couple of maybe glasses of wine or a couple of beverages because he was celebrating the Lord's harvest. The threshing floor, as we learned last week, was this potential place for sinful practice to happen. So it was, it's steeped in like anticipation. This whole story is leading to this. It feels, you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? How, like, what's about to play out? And then we've got young Ruth lays at the feet of Boaz, covers herself with his blanket, and wakes him up at midnight 
at a celebration at the threshing floor. Yeah, it's as awkward as it sounds for me to explain it to you, okay? Um, I didn't think this all the way through when we were going to preach through this, but I wish Josh was preaching these. But here we are. We've got to just explain these things, so otherwise you'll be lost. couple of points I want to make. Um, these, are, these are narratives. This story is a narrative. So I said this last week. Narratives are not always normative, all right? So the, the, the narrator is giving us what is happening in this story. This is not advice I would give my two daughters, okay? For obvious reasons. There are cultural things at play here that we don't fully understand, that we cannot fully grasp. Uh, things like marriage proposals were done a bit different. One of them takes place uh, last week that we read, and so he's responding to a marriage proposal. But these, the author is giving us a narrative, so this is not prescriptive to say, hey, when you want to meet someone, just do this. Let's, let's all be clear, don't do this, okay? Um, and what also, secondarily, this story, the, the tension that's building as the story is written is meant, that tension is there on purpose. It's meant to fill us kind of with anxiety. It's meant to fill us with what is going to happen next. How will this story play out? How will God intervene in the midst of even this, of this older man and this young woman at the threshing floor, a, a, a place that's typically known for sinful practice of obvious nature based on what's happening here? How will this couple, who has shown thus far exemplary character, uh, determination, grit, godliness, what will happen with them in the middle of this situation? And then chapter three ends, right? So the tension is meant to be there on purpose. So that's my catch up. Ruth, chapter three, verse 10 through 18, eight verses today. We'll finish Ruth next week. Here we go. And he said, this is Boaz speaking to Ruth at his feet at midnight at the threshing floor after a couple of glasses of wine, right? And Boaz said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men, rather poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. Remember last week she proposed, kind of a last second, like cover me with your wings, marry me, be, be my husband. He, so he responds, and now my daughter, do not fear, I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And know it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But he, if, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you were wearing and hold it out. And she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he's given to me. For he said to me, for he said to me You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter. 
until you learn how this matter turns out. For this man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. All right. Um, Let's just jump right in. Boaz's response to Ruth's proposal at midnight at the threshing floor, okay? Boaz responds this way, wakes up at midnight at the threshing floor, enjoying himself, surrounded by the fruits of all of his labor that him and his workers had worked so hard for. Uh, this, would be, this would be how they would provide for their town and their family. So as the celebration, young Ruth wakes him up midnight. Boaz said this, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Not your typical response of a guy that wakes up at midnight and sees a woman lying at his feet, probably. I, I don't know. This is a pretty remarkable response. He wakes right up. This is his response. So he wakes up and he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. So his, he does not respond with lust. He doesn't respond. He could have even shamed her. Like, what are you doing here? Why are you laying at my feet? This is not a place for you. This is a place for other women, right? That we discussed that would be common uh, practice at the threshing floor in other places in the Bible that it mentions. He could have shamed her, right? He doesn't do that. He responds with worship. This is incredible. May you be blessed by the Lord. Why? And the answer is, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. Now, I believe that the, this first kindness uh, was following his mother-in-law all the way back to Bethlehem out of a foreign land, out of what would be her home, back to Bethlehem. So she, Ruth follows her mother-in-law. This kindness is greater than that one. Boaz, and Boaz knows in the second kindness is this proposal I can't believe you would just ask my hand in marriage. Last week she says, the very last thing, she says, will you cover me with your wings? And we remember the last time she said that was that when she came to faith in God and she asked God that God would cover her with his wings. And now she comes to what she hopes would be her husband and say, will you carry on in the Lord's covering over me and be my husband? And would you also like the Lord protect me and guide me and shepherd me through as my husband? And cover me with your wings. So Boaz is like, this kindness is, is great. He can't believe it. And he also knows that this, this proposal also comes with Ruth's, Ruth's um, thought of caring for Naomi. It's not just herself. It's not just do this for me. But she, Boaz knows that with Ruth comes Naomi. Ruth has been helping provide food. Ruth has followed Naomi. Ruth, they're they're together, right? And so Boaz knows that Ruth, even in this proposal, is wanting to care for and provide for even her mother-in-law. She's thinking not just of herself, but she's thinking of her family, her entire family, not just not just running after what she desires, what is right in her own eyes, but saying, this is what's best for me and my family. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, Boaz says, in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, right? And so this phrase shows us that Boaz is probably a little bit older. He's probably older than Ruth is. And Ruth is obviously from this comment is probably the more attractive one. So Boaz is, he's shocked. He's like, 
Wow, this, what a kindness. I cannot believe this. You didn't go after all these younger men, right? You, you had the, the lot of the, t- they were all looking at you, Ruth. They all thought you were great. And you came and proposed to me? He can't believe it. He's like, what a kindness this is, to say the very least, right? At midnight at the threshing floor. He's ecstatic. He can't believe what's happening right now. Ruth, however, doesn't have eyes for all these other folks. She has eyes for Boaz. Why? Because she's seen his character. She's seen how he wants and desires to provide, and he cares for the poor. He has cared for the least of these. He's given provision. He's been good. He's been kind, right? He's, his character is gold, and Ruth has seen that. And Boaz is amazed, I wonder even, this is speculation, I don't know this, but I, I wonder as I've been reading through this story, if he was just thinking, I wonder if there would ever be a chance with me and Ruth. Surely not, right? He's maybe that guy like, no, there's no way that could ever work out. Right, I'm too old and she would never think of me in that way. All these other younger men, surely she'll, she'll pick one of those guys. Surely not me. I wonder if he was always hoping, maybe wondering. And then in verse 11, immediately after he gives this statement of worship to God and then talks about this, the kindness that Ruth would even mention this to him, he says, and now my daughter, do not fear. He calms her fears in what would be probably a very uh, startling and potentially fearful situation she was in at the threshing floor at midnight surrounded by all these guys. Don't fear, Ruth. I'll do for you all that you ask. He quickly just affirms her. He quickly affirms the proposal. He doesn't even need to think about it. He doesn't need to weigh the odds. He just, he knows. He doesn't have to consider the cost. He's like, no. He's like, I can't believe this. This is incredible. Ruth says, spread your wings over me, Boaz. And he says, yes, essentially. He says, for my fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman, he says to her. This is what makes Ruth and Boaz such an incredible match. This is the same word used in chapter 2 that Ruth says of Boaz. You are a worthy man in chapter 2 when she first meets him in the field. And now here at this proposal in chapter 3, the author is coming back around to this word and says, you are a worthy woman. Exact same word. It's actually the exact same word used in Proverbs 31 when the Bible is describing a virtuous woman. You're a worthy man, Boaz. You're a worthy woman, Ruth. It's the same word that Proverbs 31 when describing a virtuous, godly woman in the Bible. It's that same word. So they're a great match because of their character. But he goes on and he presents a problem in in verse 12. He says, now, yes, I am a redeemer. But he says, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. In other words, there's a closer relative who, because your husband has passed away, because your sons have passed away, uh, this idea of a kinsman redeemer would come in. And when a family member, when someone, a husband were to die, typically in this culture, a brother would come in and take that take that person on as a wife to care for uh, the lands, to care for inheritance and all these things to make sure that person wasn't left on their own. It was a way to provide for and redeem someone that had fallen onto hard 
hard times because of death. And so Boaz is making the statement here. He says, there's someone closer than me who is actually more eligible and in a closer line that if that person chooses to redeem you, it's not going to be me. And it's this point in the story, if you're at all a romantic, that you would be screaming, what? No, this can't be. Like, if that happens, this whole midnight, like, put on some perfume, this whole thing would be for nothing. It's like, it can't end like that. It's meant, it's just building more tension in the story. Without tension, stories are boring, right? We found that out. Uh, Superman, when it, was for, when it first came out, he was like invincible, could see through walls, had x-ray vision, could pick up trains. He was unstoppable. And so it was, I think the first comics were like, I, I looked it up, 65 comics with him having invincible superpowers. It got to be boring because nothing could ever stop Superman. And that's when they introduced what? That could stop Superman. Kryptonite. It made the story more interesting. Finally, something can stop Superman, this glowing cube or whatever it was. And now he's, right? It's, that makes this, it gives it tension. Otherwise, it's like, what's the point? Here's tension building in the story on purpose. We're wanting to say, this can't be. And Boaz says this to her, remain tonight. And in the morning, if he, this other one, will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will. I will. Now, there is a tragedy and yet hope in, the, in these words right here. So on one level, you're like, no, it's got to be Boaz. This impeccable, godly, this man, they've already, like, we want them together. But on the flip side, what Boaz just said changed Ruth's life forever. He said, if it's not this one, it will be me. You don't have to fear anymore. You have a redeemer. You no longer have to wonder where your next meal is going to come from. You no longer have to wonder where your family is going to end up. You no longer have to uh, beg and gather the scraps on the edges of the fields to provide for you and your mother-in-law. With this one statement, Boaz looks at her and says, regardless of what happens, you will be taken care of. God has dealt kindly with you, Ruth. This changed her life forever with this one statement. And he says this, uh, can you imagine the self-control? Now lie down here until the morning, right? Boaz comforts her, and then he has a rest. He protects her through the night, which could have been a dangerous situation and a dangerous place. Boaz, in this moment, is saying, I am going to finish this mission. I'm going to see it through the right way. I'm going to take care of Ruth. I'm going to take care of it all, Ruth. You rest. And then we read of Boaz's provision in verse 14. And so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before anyone could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that you came to the threshing floor. Boaz here is preserving her reputation and her dignity. So there's no speculation as she walks away from the threshing floor with all these onlookers. He doesn't want any gossip. He wants to make sure that her reputation is upheld. Leave before light. And then he adds this gift for Ruth to take home. He says, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. And so she held out and measured six measures of barley and put it on her. Now, this may, we, we don't understand these, these measurements. 
uh, like the original readers would have. But Ruth is some woman here. Essentially, what most scholars believe that, that Boaz just gave to her would have been 50 or 60 pounds of barley. Ruth is like, she must, I mean, some woman here, right? I don't know. I mean, she's got some guns. I don't know how she lugged that home. It was, if she had a wheelbarrow, she, I don't know how she got it, but this isn't, Boaz, basically, remember, they're at the threshing floor where they've gotten all the, all, like, their most prized possession, that which is most valuable to them as uh, an agrarian society. He picks up a hefty amount that would be very valuable, and he gives it to Ruth and says, take this home. Do not return home to Naomi, essentially empty-handed. Above and beyond, overflowing abundance he just gave to her overflowing abundance, 50 or 60 pounds. Somehow she carries it home, right? She's got some guns. This is an extravagant gift. This is not just a gift of a simple provision. This gift is symbolic. Remember we talked all about Naomi at the very beginning? How she said, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I... I, I, I walked to Moab full, but I returned to Bethlehem now empty. The Lord's dealt so bitterly with me, Naomi was saying, Ruth's mother-in-law. Now she's going to come back, and Ruth is going to lay this bountiful amount of grain and barley, and it's symbolizing the Lord's provision over this family, abounding, overflowing grace, the grace of God, the kindness of God, returning to Naomi. <laughs> Boaz here with this gesture is committing not just to caring for Ruth, but also to Naomi. This is quite a guy. In other words, go back home and remind and tell Naomi her days of emptiness are over. Her days of emptiness and wandering are over. You can begin calling her like her name means, sweet. Because God is going to deal, be dealing sweetly with her through provision. Many scholars also believe that this is also, there's a symbolic nature of this seed of this, the story of the child that will be born of Ruth and Boaz here, this abundant provision of God, right? These next verses, verse 16, and then she went to the city. She's carrying all that Boaz just gave to her. And she came to her mother-in-law's house and, she, and her mother-in-law looks at her and says, how did you fare, my daughter? This is an important moment. Naomi has been wandering. She's like, uh, what's happening here? So she looks at Ruth and says, how did you fare? This is actually the same phrase in the original language used when Ruth lays at Boaz's feet at midnight, Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? This is the same phrase used again. Naomi says, looks at Ruth as Ruth walks in the door and she basically looks at her and asks the question, who are you? Meaning, has your status changed? Give me some news. Who are you now? You left a widow mourning the loss of your husband. Who are you now as after you've met this man? Has, what has happened? Has your status changed? So we're, we're left wondering, what's happening here? Who are you? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, all that Boaz had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. And he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Can you imagine how that must have made Naomi feel? Whew. This guy even thought of me? Naomi's thinking. 
I can't believe that. God is showing his kindness to Naomi, even through this redeemer, Boaz. In other words, you're not empty any longer, Naomi. God has not forgotten about you. God has not left you alone. Verse 18, she replied, last verse, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest. For the man will not rest, but will, important word here, settle this matter today. Remember Naomi put this whole plan together for Ruth last week? A plan of action. And now she looks at Ruth and says, now you rest. Now you wait. Salvation, redemption, it's in the hands of the Lord now. You can't, you can't do anything else. You can't muster up anything else here. Right? He will settle it. God will settle it. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He will finish what needs to be finished. There's nothing more you can do, Ruth. God will settle that which needs to be settled. Trust in him. Trust in him, Ruth. Chapter three ends. Another kind of cliffhanger. And we're left wondering, what will happen? Who is this other redeemer? Will he take Ruth's hand? What will happen? That'll be next week as we're on the edge of our seat. Now, what else is happening here at play that I'd, I want us to take away as we conclude here this morning in chapter three? I want us to think about, um, I guess the obvious here, um, with Ruth and Boaz's interaction. Uh, it's midnight at the threshing floor. Boaz had a couple tall beverages, so to speak, Right? Uh, he's feeling merry, the text tells us. Um, this woman who had, he had probably been wondering if she would ever have eyes for him, an older man, has come, the text tells us, washed, smelling really nice, has a new garment on, lays down at his feet, and puts his blanket over her. And he says, cover me with your, and she says, cover me with your wings. Right? This is like a supercharged moment here in ancient Bethlehem, so to speak, right? He hears her offer, he hears her ask, and he hears her say, will you be my husband? And he has two choices here. He can say, because of righteousness, we will wait and do this the right way, and I will uphold her dignity and her purity and her honor, or we won't wait and what's juxtaposed in this whole book of Ruth is uh, Judges, how the book starts. And the, the period of Judges is when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They followed the passions of their flesh. They followed just whatever they felt. They did the, the Nike theme. Just whatever you feel like, just go do it. Right? That, uh, good thing we don't struggle with that today, right? And so this story is uh, placed in that setting on purpose. And so we're left here with these two choices. Will we wait or will we do what's right in our own eyes? Will we follow the passions of our flesh? And I'd like to just close with this, just simply. Church, I'd like for, to plead with us this morning as a church, as men and women, to be like Ruth and Boaz. These people were passionate people. These were, this was quite a romantic gesture. These are not kids aren't in service. They're not prudes, so to speak. This is a supercharged kind of a moment here, right? There, there's a lot happening. There's a lot at stake here. 
Um, these are passionate people. And can you believe the restraint that Boaz shows here? That's what's, almost, that's what's so remarkable to me here. Boaz looks at her, and in this moment where passion was probably just a thousand percent, he looks at this young woman who he's always wondered, will she ever have eyes for me? And he says, after she says, will you marry me at midnight at the threshing floor? And he says, wait until morning. Lie down right here. That is unbelievable restraint. Why? Because of righteousness, he did that. When the rest of the world, when all of his other buddies and friends, when the rest of the culture was just doing what was right in their own eyes, Boaz upholds a righteousness, gives Ruth a place of honor, gives her a place of respect, gives her a pathway to righteousness. So what can we learn from this? Um, I believe that we live in a time uh, where temptation is ever-present all around us. You would be foolish not to believe that. Um, it resides on little screens that we all carry around in our pocket. It resides on televisions. It resides really wherever, uh, wherever we want to find it, it seems like now in the day and age. Sexual temptation is all over the place um, for men and women, Right? The hooks are a little bit different for each of us, maybe in some, some respects, but it is prevalent all over the place. And so I just want us to, maybe a, a practical application from this story is that when it would seem so easy, when sexual temptation comes, comes our, in our path, it would seem so easy, seem to literally be just laying at our feet, beckoning us, saying just one click, just one, whatever it is, no one's around, no one's looking, let's take the shortcut, let's not honor our spouse, let's not honor, if you're single, our future spouse, let's just take the shortcut here and do what feels right or do what I think I deserve. When it just seems so easy, it's literally laying at your feet. I want to plead with us, church, that we would stand with Boaz in the face of fleeting pleasures like that. That we would do things the righteous way that would honor God, that would honor our spouse, that would honor our future spouse. Um, and if you find yourself in the midst of that battle and it feels like you fail all the time, um, I want you to know that um, God can have mercy on you even in the midst of that. That You, you need to just turn to him. You can turn from your sin and you can turn to him and he can cleanse you. He can purify you. He can forgive you and he can lead you down a path of healing toward righteousness. It is possible, but you can't do it alone. Uh, we all need help. And, and oftentimes it helps to speak it out loud and to have pastors and friends and accountability that can help you along to lock arms with to say, we live in a world supercharged with temptation at every corner. And so we together as a people of God want to choose the righteous path, not the easy fleeting one. Because it's for our good and it's for his glory. And it honors our spouse and it honors the Lord or it honors our future spouse. And so I just want to plead with us, church. I, 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 
as I was preparing for this, I didn't want to just miss that obvious. Boaz stood with purity. Boaz didn't take the easy path. He didn't just say, well, it's right in front of me. I'm just going to indulge my flesh because it's just right there. He stood on holy ground and holiness, honored the Lord, and honored Ruth with that decision and pursued righteousness. So let's stand with Boaz in this moment and stand with righteousness. That's what I want to plead with us. And if you find yourself in the midst of it, and you don't know how to get its hooks out of your back, come find us. We want to help you pursue holiness and righteousness. You are not alone in that fight. It's not talked about. It's often shameful to even think, uh, to think about coming forward, maybe in that type of struggle. But I can guarantee you, rest assured, there are um, men and women that are fighting that battle right now and finding victory through the grace of God, through our helper, Jesus Christ. So let us come alongside. On a broader scale, as we're closing up here, what, what's going on here? So that's maybe a personal application for us. On a broader sense, what's happening here? What we see here in the book of Ruth, why are we studying this old book? What we see is the making of the ancestor of Jesus. That's why purity and righteousness and holiness in this story is held up so highly for us to see in contrast to what would be so easily be sinful and immoral. In the midst of that moment, in the midst of what culturally and what everyone would think would be immoral and a cause for concern, the light of hope and purity and righteousness and holiness reigns over all of that because this story is the making of our heir and ancestor uh, Jesus. So you have Ruth the Moabite, the ancient enemy of God, is about to be folded purely and righteously into a line that will result in Jesus Christ. That's why this, is, this moment is so important. So God honors Ruth and Boaz with the last chapter that we'll get to next week, right? The union of these two righteous people in purity and holiness, pursuing the Lord and his kindness and his fullness with this holy union. So church, as we look at this couple, let's let righteousness reign in our lives. And when we fall and stumble, do not be afraid to raise your hand and say, I need help. That's what we're all here for. Temptations are ever present and pervasive in our day. They are powerful, just like they were that night in Bethlehem. But righteousness reigned. Holiness reigned, and it highlights the beauty of Jesus from this great union, the same town, Bethlehem, where a virgin gave birth to Jesus, the son of David, the scriptures tell us, the son of Jesse, the scriptures tell us, the son of Obed, the son of a pure, righteous, holy union between Ruth and Boaz. That's the line of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in this story of these two unlikely people coming together, Ruth the Moabite and the upstanding Boaz, Israelite man, Lord, in your sovereignty and your goodness, Lord, you brought the, these two together and through their union, you gave us your very son, Jesus. And so God, I thank you that even those of us that feel maybe we can relate to, to Ruth, I just feel like an ancient enemy of God. I've done nothing right. How could I possibly have a story like that? God, that you give us great hope 
for a Messiah for all people. The God that you can take the most unlikely of circumstances and events and produce righteousness and holiness. And so God, I pray that we as a church would lean on the goodness, the holiness, the purity of Jesus and that he would fuel us and our pursuit to live a life that honors you. God, give help to those in the midst of struggle right now. Help us stand with Boaz in the fight to temptation and help us do it the righteous way, the holy way, the way that would honor you and honor our spouse and help us help one another as we fight together a battle of holiness that you've placed us in now until we see you one day face to face. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and worship in the church.